But as you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Colossians chapter 2, I want to go ahead and pray for us that we'd be humble and ready to receive the Word of God today. Father, I thank you that your Word is like a sword, and I pray that it would pierce to the dividing asunder of our, our thoughts and intentions. And it's easy to come in looking a certain way, and yet inwardly we need reformed, we need to be turned to you. And at some cases, we need to be revived um, because we're dead in trespasses and sins. And so I pray that today you would open our eyes to behold the wonderful truths from this text, that you would deliver us from the false teachings that are so prevalent, and that you'd help us to walk in the freedom of Christ, and that we would recognize that whom the Son sets free, he is free indeed. And may we not return to the yoke of bondage. And for those who are entangled and entrapped even now in sins that continue to dominate their life, Pray you'd set them free even today. In Jesus' name, amen. The Colossian church was in a small town, and they were a faithful little church who was seeking to reach people with the gospel, and they were loving one another faithfully. But there was false teaching in the town that was being peddled, and Paul writes the book of Colossians to urge them to guard against it. And the way uh, the, the title of our series is Live in Reality because the false teachers were peddling a sort of virtual reality in your relationship with God. They really overemphasize especially the mystic and the mystical experiences. Which, by the way, just yesterday I found out that there's now an app where you can find out your cats. What's the thing about the month where it tells you what you're like? The horoscope or whatever? You can find out your cat's horoscope and pick out the exact food because this app will tell you what your cat wants for food. <laughs> that was not in my notes. I should have just uh, kept on going. But Paul told them to live in the reality of being a Christian. In Colossians chapter 1, look with me at Colossians chapter 1. He says, live in the reality of what it means that you are a Christian. Look at verse 13. It says that, we, that the, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 21 through 23 says, You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Christ has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And if you know Christ, that's how he's going to present you because you're in Christ. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so he says, the reality is when you are in Christ, you are redeemed, you are bought, you are free from the penalty of sin. But then he urged them to live in the reality of who Christ is. Look at verse 15. Christ, it says, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. By Christ were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. We're here today because Christ is continuing to hold the world together. And so we need to live in that reality. But notice an interesting shift. It says in verse 24, of chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Okay, so Paul's been talking at this point, I this, I that, I this, I that. Jump down to verse 28. It says, and this if you're following along in chair Bibles, it's page 982. It's those black Bibles in front of you. He says, him, what's the next word? We proclaim. What has Paul just done? He's shifted. Him, we proclaim. 
We are warning everyone and we are teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I think that every Christian is involved in the process of seeing people mature in Christ. And that we're supposed to be involved in that process. This is not an individual thing. We are supposed to help other people mature in Christ. And as I was studying this text, I came across a story in a, of a, in a commentary about a pastor who was opposing a certain business that was coming in. It was getting set next to a school. And it was an inappropriate business. And the pastor was opposing it tooth and nail and ended up uh, in court. And the defense attorney looked at the pastor and he said, Tell me, pastor, doesn't the word pastor mean shepherd? And the pastor said it does. And trying to catch him, he said, well, then why on earth aren't you back taking care of your sheep? And the quick-witted pastor said this. He said, because today I'm fighting the wolves. And I loved that line. But think about David. David is a shepherd that we know about. And what does he say? He goes to Saul and he says, hey, I've killed a lion and a bear. And a good shepherd recognizes that there are evils that seek to attack the sheep. There are false teachings that seek to attack the sheep. There were wolves dressed in sheep's clothing attacking the church at Colossae, and there are still wolves today. And today I want to look at the false teaching. Just, you don't have the, any notes in the PowerPoint, so today you get to find out if you take notes or if you just fill in blanks, and I already upset a few people with that. <laughs> I'll try to give the outline to you. But there's three things I want to look at today. First of all is the false teaching facing the Colossians. Second is the false teaching facing us at St. Ansgar. Third is the antidote for both. False teaching facing the Colossians. Second is false teaching facing us. Third is the antidote for both. So first of all, the false teaching facing the church at Colossae was that Christ is not enough. Look here in verse 29. He says, this I, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Chapter 2, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, those at Colossae, those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, be knit together in love, in order to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that, here's his purpose, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So whatever is coming into the Colossian church is plausible. It makes sense. It appeals to the logic of the brain. It's someone who is arguing simply based off of logic. And he says, I'm writing so that no one deceives, deceives you, deludes you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Paul could not be physically there in Colossae wrestling with these people. And so he was wrestling with them through a letter. And through prayer. The three proposed additions that they added to Christ, they believe that Christ is a good start. You know, get Jesus, that's a good start. You're on, you're on the good path. But now you need to add three things. Number one was ritualism. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. It's page 984 in your chair Bible. It says there, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world. So there was a ritualism that they were trying to bring in, connected with Judaism even. And if you look at verse 16, 
we get another clue as to what this false teaching was. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink. Okay, so now part of the ritualism is what are you eating and what are you drinking? And I think I told you last week, I had someone send me a sermon where the preacher just straight up said you should not eat pork. It's in the Bible that says you shouldn't eat pork. And it's like, literally in Scripture, it also says he gave us all things. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's in there. But he, he just pulled this text out and he said, you shouldn't eat this, you shouldn't drink that. Uh, and he, he went after coffee, and so I knew he was a false teacher because he went after. <laughs> but anyway, he says, he says here, he goes, don't let someone pass judgment upon you about food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. And then verse 21, it says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's what they would say. So there's this ritualism of you have to perform these certain things, you have to do these certain things, stand, kneel, st you know, whatever it is, you have to come to these rituals. And so they added ritualism to Christ. If you really wanted to know Christ, if you wanted to go into the deep things of Christ, you had to have rituals. Second thing they added was legalism. Legalism is basically saying that my relationship with God is earned. So it's like Christ kind of gets me into a relationship with him, but how I stay on good terms is based off of my, my performance. And so it, it distinguishes, or what it messes up is it says that your relationship with God is dependent on you instead of on Christ. And so it's really adding to Christ. And you see that here in the text too. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 2. They said that Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. According to God, if you are in Christ, you are perfect. Because you have the righteousness of Christ. And so if you're perfect, what do you have to do to earn a relationship with God? It's, it's Christ has done it. And that's why we said Calvary covers some of it. What are we saying? No, Calvary covers it all. Jesus paid most of it, you know, no, Jesus paid it all. And people say, well, I'm, I'm sure that when I got saved, Jesus covered my past sins, but what about now? And I've heard the best argument for that is when you, when Christ died on the cross, how many of your sins were in the future? All of them. And on the cross, he took care of all of them. But they said, you need to be elite. You need to be legalistic. And they had a lot of Jewish things. You had to be circumcised and you had to do all these certain things. You had to bring these offerings and whatnot. And Paul says, no, we're done with that. We're going, we have Christ. But the most, the, the thing that I think made them most plausible is look at verse 15. They added mysticism. So they added ritualism, legalism, mysticism. Verse 15, he says this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And in verse 18, it says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason in a sensuous mind. These false teachers loved what is known as the deep life and they pursued the deeper life and they believed that there were these different levels. So God is up here and there are these levels of angels that you kind of work your way through. So they believe that the entire material world is is evil. All material evil. It resulted in two things. Either they were extremely strict. You know, they didn't eat any food that, that was n tasty. They didn't drive any car that looked nice. You know, or they didn't have cars. But anyway, they didn't, they didn't do these certain things. Or 
They didn't care. And they would sleep with anyone and everyone. They just had a completely promiscuous life because matter is evil. And then they would talk about these spiritual experiences that they had. And if you didn't have these spiritual experiences, well, it's because you didn't have ritualism, legalism, and mysticism. And you needed to add to Christ these things that drew you in. And a key word that the false teachers loved was fullness. They believed that the material world was evil. And so they tried to work their way closer to God. And they, what happens, though, is if you have to work your way through different levels, guess what that means? You now have different levels of Christians. And what happens when I think I'm on this level and you're on this level? Judgment? Pride? Yeah, exactly. You think you're better than everyone else. And so now you want to go through these levels so you can look down on someone else. That creates a lot of unity. It doesn't at all. I don't think this mindset is completely gone from our day and age. The idea of the deeper life. Um, even the massive amount of use of crystals. If you're not familiar, oftentimes crystals are being used by teenagers. But I had a, a buddy in college that was a missionary kid. And one time I went over to his apartment. He just got his own apartment. I went over to his apartment. I was hanging out. And I had to use the restroom. I went to the restroom. And I tried to find a towel to wash my hands. I opened up the closet and I found this glass container that had some ashes in it. And I had no clue what it was. Congratulations. I'm a homeschooled kid who never smoked pot. Um, and I was like, dude, what, what is this? And so he went on to tell me about how when he did drugs, he felt closer to the Holy Spirit. What is it? That's just the mysticism where he's saying, I I'm closer the Holy Spirit because I'm doing drugs. And I remember, I'm, you know, I'm in college and I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's wrong. <laughs> pretty sure on this one. Pretty sure. But you know what he argues? like, the whole, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he argued for that. And I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul struck at the heart of this false teaching when he said, I'm struggling to make you perfect, mature in Christ. And he says over and over again in chapter 2, all, all. You have all that you need in Christ. And so let's look. That's the false teaching that was facing the church of Colossae. But let's look at the false teaching that's facing the church of St. Ansgar. I, I still think that there is a threat for ritualism. You could just come to church, go home, that there's no difference in your life. There's a threat for legalism where you judge your walk with God based off if you read your Bible, if you did these certain things. So there is still that present but I think overall, what we have begun to see is that the wolves attacking us as a nation, at least, are not ritualism and legalism. We still battle that inside the church, but the youths have spoken and they are done with the church. Just the other day, I heard of a pastor who was pastoring five churches at a time because attendance had plummeted so far. Five churches. The youth have spoken. They say, we don't want ritualism. We don't need your legalism. If you think that God is that petty and you can't keep up with it, we're done. We're gone. It is now a number between 30 and 40% of young adults consider themselves religious nuns. They have no spiritual identification. They're not Lutheran. They're not Methodist. They're not Baptist. They're not nothing. They say, I don't, I don't identify as anything spiritual. But see... They have thrown off the religion of their parents and said you can keep your church attendance, your sacraments, and your ritualism. But when you turn your back, what else do you turn? Your face. 
one of the things I don't hear a lot of young people talking about is the fact that when they turn their back on Christ, where they're turning their face to. Because you still have something you want to live for. You still have something you're going to pursue. You still have something you're going to pursue meaning in. Why am I here? And they turn their face to something. Now what I see is some here may still struggle with legalism and fatalism. And for you, I encourage you to read the book Grace Awakening by Chuck Swindoll or On Being a Servant of God by Warren Wearsby. But for many of you, I think that there are at least three wolves out there that steal your joy and peace, and if they can, will kill you. So here are the three that I think are really attacking our church. Number one is hedonism. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. I was reading Aesop's fables. I have his little book on his fables, and he tells a story of a little squirrel that got caught in the rain. And he was far away from his nest, and so he climbed up a tree. He found a hollow tree, and he climbed, squeezed in through this small hole, and he climbed down to the bottom, and guess what he found? Nuts galore. And so the storm's going over, and during the storm, he decides to eat a few nuts, and they taste so good, and so he continues to eat these nuts. While the storm goes away, he climbs back up to the hole, and he sticks his head out, and that's all that fits. And now he's stuck, and he can't get out. And so he climbs back down, and he sits on the pile of nuts and says, well, I must not eat. Guess what he does? He continues to eat. And every time he tries to get out, he's stuck. Is it possible for him to get out of that tree? Yes, but what needs to happen? He needs to stop indulging the flesh. Think with me about this. It says in Proverbs that there's a youth lacking sense that goes by the way of the wicked woman. But it could be a man, it could be a woman who is feeling lonely and discovers pornography. And then they're trapped in a cycle of self-indulgence, stuck on a prison that's locked from the inside. They see daylight, they long for true intimacy, but the only hole out is self-control. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. There has to be a surrendering to the Spirit. And I see this happen over and over and over again. They try filters. They put filters on their phones, computers, thinking that simply a filter will stop them. It will not. You'll figure out a way around it. They try anger. That's another one that I often see people try to fight pornography with. I'm so stupid. I can't believe it. I'm such an idiot. And so they, they get really angry at themselves. And then guess what, where they go when they feel really bad about themselves? Right back to it. And so the pornography continues to take a hold and a grip in their life. They tell themselves that they are a horrible person, but it only makes the appeal stronger. Locked on a prison from the inside. It could be drunkenness or drugs. It's the same story. You could write this down. Indulgence leads to entrapment. Indulgence leads to entrapment. When you feed the flesh, you get from the flesh corruption, Scripture says. And some here, particularly ladies, may be thinking, gross, those men are awful. I'm so glad I'm not like that. But have you ever gone online and done some shopping to fill a void? That happens oftentimes in our day and age. 
Or have you ever been so worried about what people think that every single word that you say is calculated, every blemish is hidden until the real self is completely stuck in a tree? Because we're trying to cultivate this image. We could go on to the love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil. We could go on to gluttony. Many people in our day, specifically in America, are obese because food becomes a new comfort and it becomes an idol and it becomes a trap. Yes, our church is threatened with hedonism because every single time you pick up your phone, it screams at you to indulge in the flesh. I've heard the average person sees how many thousand advertisements every day and you know what they say indulge in the flesh this will make you happy drive this car it will make you happy have this thing it will make you happy have this special tool it will make you happy it will not hedonism is a danger to us second thing is atheism you're like how is atheism a threat to the church i think we would be a fool if we said that there was no one sitting here today who has struggled or is struggling with the thought about abandoning their entire walk with God. They're thinking about just walking away. They're like, I can't figure it out. I'm just going to walk away from God. Atheism is the belief that there is no God. And the Bible says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Last week I watched the movie Nefarious, which is basically just a movie depicting um, an interview with a demon-possessed man. And And so this psychiatrist sits down to see if this man is sane enough to be killed. And he's on death row. And as he's sitting there talking to him, the man confesses that he is demon-possessed. And and the atheist says, I don't believe in God. And then later on, there's a religious person that comes in who doesn't believe in demon possession. How convenient. You know, it was interesting. We were just recently at a... uh, at an ordination even. And as we had some questions, we were questioning the candidate. Um, When we walked away, we said, I don't think they really believe that there are spiritual forces of evil attacking the church. That there are genuinely evil, God-created angels. Angels fell, and angels became Satan's masters on earth, opposing the cause of Christ. Actually, not too long ago, and this, this is something that, honestly... Um, in our circles, so often it doesn't get talked about because there's this, there's this mysticism, there's the word, there's this mysticism about it. But not too long ago, my best friend was working down in Ames, and he's working with a, the church there in college, and there's this guy that comes into the service, and he's absolutely insane, absolutely wild. Long story short, the guy places his faith in Christ, completely new man. You remember the story about the, the guy who is full of demons? And as Jesus cast out the demons, and the man was clothed and what? In his right mind, is what Scripture says. And so how convenient would it be for Satan to promote atheism? To say, hey, let's have our schools teach that there is no God. Let's have our, our nation, let's have our major influencers on social media teach that there is no God. That you can't know, that you cannot believe that there is a God. Satan loves atheism, and I would be ignorant to think that a massive amount of atheistic teaching hasn't gotten under some of my sheep's skin. But look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 4 through 5. I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. Look also at verse 8, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty 
deceit. So we have hedonism, the indulgence of the flesh, atheism, the belief that there is no God. I think the most dangerous one is individualism. Individualism is the habit or principle of being independent or self-reliant. And if we take a look at nature, it screams to us the danger of individualism. A child may smash a little ant, but have you ever seen a horde of fire ants climbing up an adult? What is the adult's reaction? <laughs> Terrified, right? And we have over and over again, I mean, if a wolf wants to steal sheep, he either has to strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be what? Scattered. Or lure the sheep away. I remember a man who came uh, to, my, to one of the sermons here, totally disagreed with me and made that very clear after the service, and believed that everything wrong in our world was because there were women in the workforce. <laughs> and uh, like that, like, the cure for every world problem was for the women to come home and have babies. I'm like, wait a minute, what? And so we had a conversation, and there, there is biblical headship. I believe in biblical roles. I believe in that. But we had a conversation, and it was very, very soon that this person decided, hey, I'm going to start my own church with my family. And I thought, how convenient it is, because last I checked, it is easy to score touchdowns when there's no defense. Isn't it? And that person, he would not sit down and talk with me. Why? I had verses. <laughs> I had verses to argue against it, to argue against his stance and his belief. Listen, when you isolate, you endanger yourself. When you isolate yourself from the body of Christ, you danger yourself. The theme verse of America seems to be, you have no need that anyone teach you. From 1 John. But the Bible tells me that a man might prevail against a person who is alone. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. There might be a sin that if you're alone, you're going to lose in. But if you're not, you'll win. Right before it, it says two are better than one. And our Lord tells us that we are a body who is supposed to be knit together. He pictures us as a building of bricks built together on the cornerstone, which is Christ. I think that's probably the greatest threat to the Church of America today is that we have a whole bunch of people coming in trying to hear from God for themselves and they're trying to work out their own salvation by themselves. There's no, hey, Ken, I'm letting you into my life. I want to be accountable. Hey, I need help. I need strength. I'm discouraged. There's no, there's no mutuality. It's the idea of silos, a bunch of silos sitting in the church instead of a body working together. It's dangerous. And it threatens yourself. Because here's another one. I know someone who uh, they've completely isolated themselves. Extremely depressed, extremely discouraged. Go to church, they feel really alone. And I say, well, who have you talked to? Who have you invited over? Who are you around? They say, no one, no one, no one. It's like, okay, because you can get discouraged as well. Maybe just pencil this in as a footnote to think about later. Do you think a fully individualistic church needs a pastor? Just think about that. I've had a few experiences in the last 10 years where a pastor has left the church and the congregation basically cheered. Because they don't want a shepherd leading. They want someone just to fill, fill the pulpit. We'll, we'll take care of our relationship with God. You just fill the pulpit, preach a good sermon. That's, that's the danger of individualism okay so what's the antidote that's an important question right 
the antidote. Come back next week and we'll talk. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> One commentator said, it is good to warn, but how far would we get in our travels if the highway signs told us only where the roads were not going? Paul was struggling for at least, I think we have five things here, so get ready to write quickly. He's struggling for encouragement. He says in Colossians chapter 2, I want your hearts to be encouraged. A discouraged Christian is an easy target. And encouraged means to come along beside someone, have someone hold you up. If you ever watch football and a guy gets tackled and his knee, you know, they show it up in close, I hate those. They show in close motion his knees like over here, you know. And he stands up and he has one good leg. And what happens? Someone comes along beside him, sticks their arm under him, and he hops off the field. And everyone cheers because he's hopping off the field or he's limping off the field. That's the picture of encourage, to come alongside to pick someone up. So when you're discouraged, when you're defeated, you have someone who comes alongside and they pick you up. And Paul says, I want you to be encouraged. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, that our encouragement is in Christ. You and I are naturally dead in our trespasses and sins. We're alienated from God, enemies of God, and ungodly. But while sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish by eternal life. So the question is, have you believed in him today? Have you come to Jesus Christ to receive the eternal life that you don't deserve? Have you given up your pride and your need to earn salvation and called in the name of the Lord and confessed your sins and asked him to forgive you? And if not today, you can do that, even now. Or come up after the service, and I'd love to walk you through that because it says in Christ, you're a new creation. So Paul struggles for their encouragement. Here's five, I think I have five E's. Where's me help me get them all E's. So second one is endearment. The antidote is encouragement. Someone come alongside of you. Secondly, it's endearment. It says here that in verse two, their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Love is a sphere in which unity is found. And Paul took time to minister to individuals and not just a group. And so remember, if you minister to one in the body of Christ, you're ministering to the whole body of Christ. And there should be an endearment and a love for one another where we're genuinely concerned for each other's needs spiritually. So who can you encourage this week? Believers should be informed that other Christians are interested in their spiritual welfare. The person outside of my family who's probably been the, the biggest example of this to me is um, Nick Harsh. He's my best friend. Him and I, Marco Polo, regularly. We are complete opposites. He has a beautiful head of wavy hair. I don't. <laughs> and if I grew it out, I wouldn't. Um, and he loves skinny jeans. I don't even fit in skinny jeans. Like, it just doesn't work. We're comp- he loves the big church and church plant. We're just completely in polar, op- we're, we're complete polar opposites. Yet, the one who has faithfully over and over and over again given me counsel, helped me out of discouraging seasons, strengthened me at times when I was weak, is Nick. Why? Because he loves me. And I love him. And you'll find, when you love other believers, it is a lot easier to minister to them. And when you're loved by other believers, you'll find that you often win over sin more often too. And so he says you need to be encouraged. You need to be, have endearment. He's struggling for endearment. Third thing is he's struggling for enrichment. He said, notice there it says the riches, the treasures of the wisdom of knowledge of God, the riches of Christ, the riches of full assurance. Here's the fourth thing is struggling for enlightenment. When he talks about wisdom and knowledge. So you have encouragement, endearment, enrichment, enlightenment. And oftentimes for people who want to know, I thought that even... 
um, when the news about the Perry shooting came out, the first thought I had is, why? Why? We want to know. We like knowing what is on people's minds. We don't like this idea that someone can just be evil. And so the false teachers talked about the need for enlightenment and uh, be wary of anyone who tells you that there is a key that you're missing to your walk with God. Beware of those keys because usually what happens is the key is always out of reach. And this plays out in our marriages sometimes. Marriage can be stressful. No amens? Okay. Uh, discouraging. Too scared. <laughs> Next on my line is fear-inducing. <laughs> fear-inducing. When you think about understanding your spouse, sometimes it feels like it's just out of reach and that there's some key that will permanently unlock your ability to understand your spouse. Maybe that's just a folly of youthful marriage. But sometimes you're like, if I could just get this, then, then I'll be able to read her mind and always know what it is. I had someone just text me a picture the other day that said, uh, when my wife said, uh, me, me after my wife tells me that she's fine, using the scientific method to figure out what's wrong. You know, it's a picture of a scientist like going nuts trying to figure out what it is. And so we feel like there's this key that we can automatically understand it. Or we have people that we read book after book after book trying to discover the secret of building wealth. There's a longing in every human heart to know. But many want Jesus to appear to them really quickly so they can just know that he is who he says he is. And the idea is that assurance is just one step ahead of, ahead of us. It's just out of reach. But Paul says, no, you're assured in Christ. Find your enlightenment in him. And the last one is struggling with entrenchment. Entrenchment, I had to get another E in there. He says in verse, chapter, verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible argument, arguments. For though I am absent in body, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and firmness of faith. And those are both military terms. He says you got to be ordered and firm in your faith. We need to be entrenched in our faith. Plausible arguments is the word that was used by classical writers for probable reasoning opposed to demonstration. Let me give you two illustrations, then we're going to come to communion. Many people hate Dave Ramsey because he's just brash. But one of the things you'll notice if, he, if you're talking or if you call in, if you dare to say, I ran a calculator and it said this. He will jump all over and say, I did a study of 10,000 people <laughs> and this was the result. And many times financial gurus will want you to run calculators, calculators, calculators. Cal they're probable arguments. And Dave argues against it with actual experience. And many, many times when people try to deceive you, it's just going to sound probable, but they don't actually have the, the evidence to back it up. But I want to share with you the most compelling illustration I have ever heard for evolution. It happened this week. I was on Facebook. And uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, he had a, a jar that was filled with liquid, and it had blue and white beads. And he took that jar, and he shook it up. And all the beads mixed together, and then he set it down. They all mixed together, and then slowly the, blue, the white beads rose, and the blue beads sunk. And then they slowly came back together. And he said, behold, order out of chaos. And I was like, ooh, that's a good illustration. 
And so I thought about that for a while, and then a thought occurred to me. Who made the beads? Who made the jar? Who shook the beads in the jar? <laughs> Who made the water? Where did they get that content from? It was super plausible, and I will tell you, at the beginning, I was like, whoa, that's a pretty plausible argument. It's reasonable arguing. But then you step back and say, uh -uh, there's more to it. People will try to deceive you with logical arguments, and they will tell you what we're about to celebrate here is communion, which we believe pictures the death of Jesus Christ, his blood shed for us. And if you are born again, you know Christ as your Savior, we invite you to partake of communion with us. There, is a, there are two cups. Take both cups. The bread is in the bottom, and then the juice is on top. But as we think about this, there are people who are going to say, the blood and body of Christ is not enough. Do not believe them. And if you are entrapped in hedonism, struggling with atheism, or just individualism, come together. Begin to lean on each other. Begin to work together. You can talk to me, and I'd love to connect you. But one of the things that I've been trying to encourage in our church is this idea of discipleship, where I train one, you train one, they train one, and you continue to do that, where we're working together for each other's spiritual maturity because we're genuinely concerned for each other.